It is time for us to begin. We are, this is the last uh, class of the quarter, as I said in the announcements a little bit ago. Uh, so we're finishing up in here and then next Wednesday in this room, Alex, this is yours, right? Alex will be teaching a class on marriage in here. So you'll want to be here for that if that's relevant to you. Otherwise, we'll be in room 13, the other class, uh, continuing our study of Isaiah. And then... And that teacher's not as good. Yeah, right. You don't, don't worry about him. And then... Um, <laughs> On Sunday in this room, you're teaching, right? Frank will be teaching the book of Mark. And then I believe it's Nehemiah, um, which is Galen and Zach Harbor. And I feel like there's one more and I can't remember who it was. Ryan. Ryan, Ryan thank you. Yes. Uh, they'll be teaching in room 13. And then the young adults will be studying uh, the book of James in the library room. So if you are, you know, of the right age or brave enough to go in there if you're not, uh, that's for you. That's where I'll be. Certainly not uh, anymore, a young person. So... That's that. So a lot of good classes coming up. I hope you'll make it a point, make it a determined effort to be at all of them. But we are ending the quarter today. We are wrapping up this study. Uh, in this class, it's been a study of grief. Now, I'll say this just at the outset. Um, I have not been in this class. So I may say things you've already heard or whatever, uh, and I apologize for that. It's, it's not my intention to step on any toes of the previous um, speakers who, who've taught the class. I've been in the other class, which uh, David Reese has been teaching the book of Psalms. And obviously you guys have all been in here, so you haven't been in there. But I'll say this, if you ever get the chance to listen to him teach the next time he teaches, by all means, uh, uh, take yourself, uh, treat yourself to it. Because he's a very thoughtful speaker. I don't mean thoughtful like, oh, he's so thoughtful. Yeah, I'm sure he is that too. But I mean he puts a lot of thought into his, his uh, classes. Every, every sentence is preceded by a thought. You know, he's thinking about the exact right way to say it, and you can tell he puts a lot of effort into his study. So uh, it's, it was a real treat the three times I got to be there uh, when I wasn't out of town listening to him teach the Psalms. So next time he teaches uh, and you don't have anything else going on, definitely make it a point to be in his class. Uh, all right, so we're studying grief. And it's my responsibility. I'm going to teach the first half. Frank's going to teach this, the, uh, the last half of this class tonight. Um, to kind of wrap up the class, it's my responsibility to put the bow on it all and to give us our final topic, our final topic, which is a healthy recovery from loss means having gratitude for what we have. And I inserted, that was the title I was given, and I inserted the little parenthetical, means having gratitude for what we still have. That's implied, but uh, I think it needs to be vocalized. So a healthy recovery from loss means having gratitude for what we still have. I would assume that we have not spent, that you have not spent the past 12 weeks in just a pity party. I would assume that the goal of this class has been to overcome, to work through, to move beyond, to get to uh, a healthier stage uh, of your grieving process. It's not just been to let's talk about grieving and then let's just feel bad while we're grieving. If this last title is anything to go by, the goal of the class has been for a healthy recovery. Uh, as you move through, grief is supposed to be a process, not supposed to be a state that you stay in, but rather a journey you move through to get to the other side of. So it falls on me to talk about this subject, ha having gratitude for what we still have. And I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get there in just a little bit. So let's consider some things first of all, just kind of as a, um, as a baseline. All right. First of all, losing one thing does not mean losing everything. 
And I say that in the broadest, vaguest of terms because whatever it is that you're grieving over is probably not the same of what everyone else is grieving over. Even if it is the same thing that caused both of your griefs, you are two different people. You lose a child, you're a father who lost a child, she's a mother who lost a child. That's two different things. They're a brother who lost a brother or a sister who lost a sister, what have you, or a grandparent or a friend. We're all going through the same grieving process over the same person if it's a death but we're all different, so we're all dealing with it differently. Whatever it may be, it doesn't have to be a death. Whatever it is you're grieving over, whatever it is that started that spiral of despair, th this is just a statement, okay? It's not a very fair statement. It's certainly one that we can all understand intellectually, but not always appreciate emotionally, especially when they're in the thick of it. And that is, you've lost something, but you haven't necessarily lost everything. In fact, take that necessarily. You haven't lost everything. It can feel like you've lost everything. And it's very difficult sometimes to uh, bridge the gap between the mind and the heart in that matter because you can tell yourself intellectually and you can hear someone tell you and you can agree with them on an intellectual level, yes, I know I still have this and I still have them and I still have these things. I just don't have this one thing. And you try to quantify it in your mind, but you can't quantify it in your heart because your heart is telling you it's your world. It's your everything whatever it may be that you've lost. So this is just an intellectual statement. I recognize we're not going to appreciate it when they're in the middle of the grieving process. You've lost something, but you haven't necessarily lost everything. Could somebody please read for the class Romans 8, 31 through 39? Read it aloud, please. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, he can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how would he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who is he that condemns Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine? nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, now think about this is a text we know very well. Think about that list that Paul gives you of all these kind of hardships that you can experience persecution, tribulation, nakedness, peril, sword, that whole list. Those are all things, sword being, uh, you know, stand in for death, you being killed, but also your others being killed. They've suffered the sword for Christ before you have had the chance to. Those are all things over which we grieve. We, we have bereavement and we have suffering, we have hardship, and those things cause us to grieve. What does that sound? Did anybody hear that? We have all these sufferings. We have all these hardships that cause us to grief, right? But Paul's point is to say, yes, we have those things, but can those things separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? Can those things stop Christ from loving you? Can those things, if you let it stop you from loving Christ? And the answer is no. You've lost something. It's caused you grief, but you haven't lost everything because as we're going to end this section in a few minutes, you haven't lost Jesus. So let's start with this. Let's talk about things that cannot be lost. While you're in the middle of grieving over something you've lost, 
trying to connect, reconnect the heart and the mind and understand what you know and make your heart tell you it's true, let's talk about some things that you cannot lose and think about these while you're grieving. First of all, you cannot lose the reliableness of God. Psalm 22. We don't have time to read the whole psalm, but by all means, avail yourself to that psalm, which begins with David crying out in a state of grief, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from hearing the words of my roaring? Here I am crying out to you, here I am shouting out to you, and you don't hear me. Well, he does. David just doesn't think that he does. Why have you forsaken me? Well, he hasn't. David just thinks that he has. Has anybody ever felt forsaken by God? It is not a sin to feel that way. David feels that way. It doesn't make it true. And think about it like this. We have these things when we're grieving where I know these things, but I don't feel these things. There's a disconnect between the heart and the mind. Okay, well, that runs both ways. I can feel something, but that doesn't make it true. It feels like God has forgotten about me. It feels like God has abandoned me. It feels like I'm all alone, but I'm not all alone. It just feels like that. And my whole world feels like everything is crashing down around me, and I have no one to hold it up. Okay, feel is not real, necessarily. Feels like that, but that doesn't mean it is like that. When you go to the end of that psalm, David kind of works himself through therapeutically the process, and he says, he has not forsaken, nor has he despised his chosen one. Feels like that, but now I can come through and I can look at it in past tense and recognize he, he had never forsaken me. The reliableness of God is still there. Where have you gone? are words that grieving people ask all the time in prayer. But I would point out to that person, you're asking God that, which implies you expect Him to be hearing you when you say that. You're praying that to God. It implies you're expecting God's ears to be open to hear that. Even David, when he wrote, Why have you forsaken me? expected God to hear that statement, which somewhere in David's mind, in the back of his mind, he knew God hadn't forsaken him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have bothered to say the words to God, who he knew was listening. You can't lose the reliableness of God. You cannot lose the forgiveness of God because sometimes in our grief, we lash out, we say things we should not say, we do things we should not do. Hardships happen, consequences happen, and we wonder, how could God ever take me back after what I did? Or even just what I said, or even just what I thought. Have you ever thought something? An anger against God in a moment of grief that you ought not have thought. Have you ever said something against God, blasphemous against God? Have you ever done something against God in a moment of grief or despair? And then you thought, well, now I've just made it worse. I've compounded the problem. And now on top of all these worldly issues that I'm dealing with, this one huge problem I'm grieving over, now I've turned against God. And now the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, Lamentations 3. His mercies never come to an end. They are new. What are new? His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. You know how the song goes. It's Jeremiah's words. Listen, set grief aside just for a second, because grief in this context is just the thing that motivated you saying or thinking or doing something against God. All right? It doesn't excuse it. It just explains why you did it. All right, fine. But let's just set grief aside for a second. Let's appreciate they are new every morning, that phrase. All right? God has a cup, and it is empty. And you want this cup to be empty. You get up in the morning and that cup that God has with your name on it is bone dry. You get out of bed 
You make your way to the bathroom, but before you get there, you stub your toe on the bedpost, and you say a bad word, and God's cup fills up just a little bit. And you get ready for work, and you're heading out the door, and you back your car over the bicycle that your son didn't put away. And you think a bad thought about your son, and God's cup fills up a little bit more. And you head out into traffic, and someone cuts you off, and they cut you off, and you're just there. You didn't do anything wrong. You're driving 55 in a 55, and they cut you off, and because you are suddenly there in their way, they flip you off, and you're angry, and you flip them off right back, and God's cup fills up a little bit more. And then you go to work, and someone's gossiping about someone else, and you join in with the gossip because you don't like them either, and God's cup fills up a little bit more. And you go home, and you're tired, and you're exhausted. You've had a hard day. A thousand things have gone wrong, and you just want to sit in your chair. And you just want to watch Sports Center, and your child just wants to get in your lap and tell you about his day. And you just snap and you say, Just give me an hour. Just leave me alone for an hour. And it's been eight hours. He hasn't seen you in eight hours. To him, it's an eternity, his little bitty mind, the way he perceives time. He just wants to tell you about his day, and you snapped at him, and his cup gets a little bit more full until it reaches the brim and it overflows. And the wrath of God is poured out against you. And somebody, probably your wife, some godly person, talk some sense into you and the only way a wife can and the way that a wife knows how to reach you and gets you to realize before you pillow your head at night I was such a jerk today I just want to start over and so you whisper a prayer and you say I'm sorry I want to do better tomorrow and you wake up in the morning and that cup is bone dry again and you get out of bed and you don't stub your toe you put the toothpaste on the toothbrush and you head toward the water or the faucet and it drops into the sink and you say a bad word and the cup fills up a little bit more. And it just starts over. It just, that's just the way it starts over. How many times will I sin against you, God, and you keep forgiving me? Seven times? Seventy times seven. They are new every morning. And when I'm grieving, my grief is also new every morning. And sometimes I lash out anew every morning and by the end of the day as I'm trying to get my life back together and put the pieces back together I might recognize that and I might cognizantly say to God I shouldn't have reacted that way I shouldn't have thought that I shouldn't have said that I shouldn't have done that I'm sorry it's the same prayer you said yesterday it's the same one you said the day before probably the same one you'll say tomorrow and every morning his mercies are new you cannot defeat the reliableness of God you cannot defeat the forgiveness of God last one in this point what can't be lost the attentiveness of God somebody please read 2 Corinthians 12 7 through 9 2 Corinthians 12 7 through 9 so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here is, the, here is Paul using phraseology like it's a weakness, it's a thorn in my flesh, it's a, a stick in my mud, it's a something in my craw. I don't remember what the figure of speech is that we use in the South. I've got this problem that I can't get rid of. I think it's safe and fair and 
accurate to say he's grieving over it. It may not be to the extent that he would be if it was a loved one who had died, but he is in the process of grief, and so from that we can learn something. In his state of agony, in his state of frustration, in his state of grief, he asks God, God, I've got this problem. Will you please remove it from me? Will you get this thing away from me? I don't know what his thorn in the flesh was. It could have been something as small as his eyesight. It could have been the constant hounding Judaizers who were following around every town that he went to and undermining his authority. Whatever it was, he had this problem and it was hindering, his, in his mind, his ability to preach the gospel. And so he says to God, God, will you please get rid of this thing? It's not just bad for me, it's bad for you because they're hurting my ability to preach your message. This is what you asked me to do. This is what you called me for. Get rid of it. And God said, no. No, you'll be fine. So what did Paul do? He didn't take no for an answer. He asked him a second time. God, I've got this problem. It's still there. It's not getting any better. It's not making things any better. In fact, it's getting a whole lot worse. Can you please get rid of this thing so that I can do my job more effectively? And God said, no. You've got a problem. You're going to have to ride through the storm. What did Paul do? He didn't take no for an answer. A third time he goes to God. And not a one time in all this does God say, would you please drop it? Not a one time does God say, will you move on to something else? Or does he say, you got other problems. you got other things to talk about. No, Paul's got one thing on his mind. Paul's got only one thing on his thoughts, and that one thing that he's already gotten the no answer for, he keeps coming back because he doesn't feel satisfied. He doesn't feel satisfied. So what do you do when you're not satisfied? You ask again, and a third time he's still told no. You're going to ask God, I've got this problem. I'm grieving over this thing. Will you help me get over it? Will you get me over it now? And God may say no. No, you're not done yet. What are you going to do? You're going to stop praying? No, you're going to come back tomorrow. It's me again, God. My problem is still here. Will you get rid of it for me? Will you take it away? This thorn in my flesh. And he may just say again, no. One day he may say yes. And won't that be Christmas morning? But in the meantime, he'll just say no. And what are we going to do? Are we going to stop praying? No. He's still listening. He still wants us to pray to him. He still wants us to talk to him. There's so much therapy in just talking just talking about your problems to God, his, his ear is always bent. You can't take those away. You can't lose those things. Those are some things you can't lose. Now let me give you some things that need not be lost, that you could lose in your grief, but you don't have to lose. You need not lose your faith toward God. Somebody please, 1 Peter 5, 7 through 9. 1 Peter 5, 7 through 9. First Peter, sorry, First Peter 1, 5 through 9. I don't know what I was thinking. First, thank you, thank you, Frank. First Peter 1, 5 through 9. What it says on the screen is right. Who by God's powers are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice through now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved <coughs> by various trials so that the tested genuineness or genuineness of, of faith of your faith more precious than gold and and that precious <coughs> perishes through it is tested by the fire may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him you love him, though you do not see him, now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is 
inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here's Peter. He used a word at the beginning of that reading. You are grieved. This is our word. You have a grief. You are grieved. You have hardship. You have lamentation. You have a broken heart over whatever the problem may be. But you see it as an opportunity to strengthen your faith. It doesn't have to be that, though. You can easily walk away. You can give up right now. You can quit. You can drop your faith like a hot potato. But if you hold on to it, if you lean into your faith, if you double down on your faith, then when this problem, this grieving period does eventually end, although it never fully entirely ends, but when you move on to the next phase and you're a little stronger on the other side, your faith will be stronger with you. It doesn't have to be. You can drop it, but it could be. It need not be given up. And if it's not, your faith will come out stronger. Something else you need not lose. You need not lose your hope in God. Psalm 42. We don't have time to read it. We studied it a few months ago. It's that beautiful psalm of um, my soul thirsts for God like a deer that pants for the water. And I feel sometimes like I want to give up entirely. That I just, I'm ready just to lay down and just die. I'm in this hardship that's so bad, I'm ready just to give up. And then I say to my soul, no, do not give up. Instead of giving up, hope in God. See the light at the end of the tunnel and keep crawling toward it. Even that's all you can do. You can't march anymore. You can't jog, certainly not. You can't run anymore. You can't even walk, but you can just crawl slowly but surely an inch at a time to that light at the end of the tunnel. That is what hope is. I have the expectation that there is another side and God will get me to that other side. Hope in God. You don't have to do that. You can lay down and die. But if you hope, God will get you to the other side. You need not lose your faith. You need not lose your hope. You need not lose your soul. Somebody. 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23. 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. It doesn't matter that David's son died as a consequence for David's sin. It doesn't matter that David's son died as punishment for David doing wrong. It matters. That's why it happened. But in the moment David is grieving, and he's not grieving as a sinner over his sin. He's already repented of that. Now he's grieving as a father over the death of his child. And his perspective is, I have two options. Option A, I can remain faithful to God, and I can see my son again. Or B, I can turn away from God. I can give up on God and never see my son again. And when you put them in that perspective, he has no option. He has one. He doesn't have options on the table. He has one, the only path he can take. He can lose his soul. He doesn't have to be faithful. He doesn't have to stay true to God. But if he chooses to, then a happy ending is over the bright blue. It's not a happy ending here. Here he has no son. That son at least. But over there, he can have a son. And the only way he's going to get over there where that son is, it's if he holds on to his soul in faithfulness. That need not be lost. Before I sit down, I want to tell you the secret of life. I know that's very haughty of me to say. Don't worry, I don't have all the answers. I get this from the Bible. The secret of life is that it's temporary. We don't have time to read it all, but 2 Thessalonians 1, the whole it's a beautiful chapter. We always just pluck out two verses of it, but the whole chapter is basically Paul sympathizing with the persecution of the brethren and saying God's going to set things right. Very similar to what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 
Uh, you're, you're troubled, you're in hardship, but Christ will return and everything will be great again. Second Thessalonians is all about how you're troubled, you're in hardship, and God will set things right by punishing those people. But that's only on the surface. And the subtext is God's setting things right. It's going to be okay. You're in this world and it's terrible right now, but very soon you will not be in this world anymore. And that's worth celebrating. Because in the end, very soon, Christ will set everything right. The secret of life is appreciating the fact that it's not going to last forever. And with it, all of the hardships of this life will not last forever. The secret of life is not living it. That is to say, it's not living it up. It's not having a good time. The secret of life is enduring it. And that sounds very cynical. And that sounds very morose. But it doesn't have to be like that. It's simply a recognition. Somebody read John 16.33. It's simply a recognition that there's a far better life waiting for you on the other side of the rainbow. It's simply recognition there's a far better way to live that this world is constantly going to be pushing you against, pushing against you for trying to live that way. But then one day, God, after he sets everything right, it'll just be you and God and all of God's people just living that way with nobody around to hurt you. And that's something worth living for. Just get through this life to get there. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What am I supposed to add to that? He's not telling you it's going to be easy. He's telling you it's going to be worth it. He didn't say the ride's going to be smooth. He didn't, forget the ride. It's the destination that matters. You, through me you will overcome the world. The secret of life is contentment. Now, I know you know that. You've heard that one before. It's the text we just read, 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23. I want you to think about the way we always read that verse. David's lost his son. David's talking about losing his son and the, the eternal perspective that comes with that. Here's how we always read that. We always read it like this. Forget how Alex read actually from the text verbatim. When we paraphrase it in our minds, here's what we always do. We always do it like this. Well, you know, when David lost his son, here's what he said. He said, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. That's not what David said, though. I mean, he said those words, but not in that order. <clears throat> what did David say? He didn't say, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. David said, I can go to him, but he can't come to me. That's the same words, but you flip those two clauses around, and doesn't it become much more sad? That's a person in a state of grief. I can go to him, I know but he can't come to me. Now I want you to think about this. Here's, here's my simple little definition of contentment. This, whatever the problem is, this is not okay, but I will be. Doesn't that sound like contentment? All right. If that statement is true, and if that is a true description of contentment, I'll say it again, this is not okay, but I will be. If that's a true statement of contentment, you should be able to flip that around and it still be true. I will be okay, but this is not okay. I will be okay, but I am not okay right now. It's going to be okay, but it's not okay today. That's contentment. It doesn't sound like it. It doesn't look like it, but that's contentment. Somewhere in that grief is the recognition, is the true understanding that God is going to take care of me. It's going to be okay, but I am not okay right now. I will be okay, but I am not okay right now. To me, if I get that down... I'll be okay. A healthy recovery from loss means having gratitude for what we still have. So what do we still have? We have each other. We've all lost something and we'll all help each other. We have God who also lost a son but got him back. 
who, who, who has a son who has felt every aspect of our infirmity and sympathizes with us. We have each other, we have God, and we still have tomorrow. And tomorrow may be another bad day, or tomorrow may be the final day, which for Christians is a good thing. But we have tomorrow. We haven't lost tomorrow. And all the hope that God provides for us in tomorrow. All right, that's all. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck, and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right, thank you.